Charles this week's Sports Zone on Salford City Radio. I'm Rob Paxson, and we're here talking all things sports in Salford. Joining the show this week, as ever, we've got James Sweetnam. James, looking forward to our Easter special, uh, talking all things sport in uh, Salford and beyond. Very much so. I hope everybody's been good this year and the Easter Bunny has dropped off all those chocolate eggs. I know I'm excited to open my Lindor one this year. Very excited to do that. But we've got a bit of a different show this week. Uh, we're not reading the regular stuff. We've got a couple of lists up our sleeves, top 10 managers, top 10 sports people. Of course, we are going to be covering the massive fight between Tyson Fury and Dillian White, but we can't wait for you to see what we've got up our sleeves. Yeah, lots to go on and we'll start with the boxing. There's an absolute mega fight this weekend as two of the biggest names in British boxing are scheduled to go toe-to-toe at Wembley Stadium and the fans can't wait. Oh, they can't, Rob. This is a big one. Tyson Fury, the Gypsy King versus Dillian White, the body snatcher, in one of the biggest fights in British boxing history. These two men do not like each other. Tyson Fury coming off the back of the extraordinary performance against, against Deontay Wilder, where both men went down several times. Fury ultimately winning that battle of attrition to maintain his WBC World Championship, the title that Dillian White has been pursuing for 1,500 days. He's been the number one contender. He's been desperately trying to get his shot at that belt. He's had to fight the Lucas Browns of this world, the Oscar Evers, the Derek Chisora, the Joseph Parkers, to get this opportunity. He's finally got it. He's going to want to take full advantage of this, but can he do it? It's difficult to see a way. Tyson Fury, the significantly bigger, stronger, technically better, it's a big challenge for Dillian White, but there's a big grudge going into this one. White supposedly dismantling Fury in sparring a few years ago. Of course, the Gypsy King denying these allegations, but you've got to think if they are true, he's going to have his demons going into this one, and they're all the ingredients we need to make this one a real barn burner. Uh, where does this matchup rank among the great British fights, James? Right at the top, Rob, right at the top. I know we've had some biggins, haven't we, over the years? Lennox Lewis versus Frank Bruno, George Groves versus Carl Froch, and more recently, Amir Khan versus Kell Brook. But I believe that this one blows them all out of the water. Tyson Fury versus Dillian White is going to break records, not only in terms of the £40 million purse bid that Frank Warren put in to win this one, but also in terms of the attendance. 94,000 fans jam-packed into Wembley Stadium to witness the heavyweight championship of the world on the line between these two behemoths. Trash talk galore. That's what we're expecting in fight week. Not so much in the build-up. That's been a bit peculiar, and we'll get onto that in, in due time. But this is a big one. And I think as soon as fight week starts, the fans are going to get drawn in because they are going to exchange verbals. Tyson Fury wants to beat up Dillian White. Dillian White wants to beat up Tyson Fury. It's not just a case of calling themselves the best in Britain. It's a real grudge match, and they want to say that they're better than each other. What have you made of the pre-fight build-up, James? Obviously, boxing, the, the build-up to the fights are always the, the one of the entertaining parts. They are. And when this fight was announced, people thought that we were going to have a spectacular build-up. Tyson Fury and Dylan White, two of the best trash talkers, not only in Britain, but in the entire sport. Tyson Fury, often renowned for winding people up at press conferences, for getting into people's heads. Deontay Wilder and Vladimir Klitschko, two famous examples. But Dillian White can, can handle his own in that department. He's, he's dismantled the likes of Lucas Brown in that department. But he's been very petty with the whole situation. He's refused to turn up to press conferences. He's not posted a single piece of pre-fight build-up or promotion onto his social media pages. We've not heard a peep from him 
throughout the entire six or so weeks that this fight has been announced for. Uh, he is going to be attending the press conferences on fight week, we believe. I mean, at some point he's got to turn up because he's got to at least go to the weigh-in and do a face-off. So at some point he's got to face Tyson Fury. Uh, his fans could argue that this is a stroke of genius because the Gypsy King is often renowned for needing that pre-fight build-up when he's been a bit more lackadaisical. He struggled to perform. Just take the Otto Wallen performance, for example, for a fight where he didn't have the pre-foot build-up and he performed relatively poorly and he almost came unstuck that night against the Swedish Southpaw. So this could have worked out for Dillian White. But on the other hand, it could be argued that White's nervous, that White's scared and he doesn't want to engage in the battle of the minds between Tyson Fury. So it's an interesting one, to say the least. And from some perspective, it's almost added a little bit more of an intrigue to the fight. I think it's a bit strange that obviously the the promoter uh, wants both fighters to to build this fight up, but if you've got one fighter who's just not really bothered, just wants to turn up and fight, how how does that affect the build up of the fight? Does it make it bigger? Maybe because everyone expects Dillian White to be making all kinds of noises, but he's not. Well, as you say, it, it has added an element of mystique. Hmm. Dillian White's out in Portugal at the moment, training for the fight, and nobody quite knows where his head's at what shape he's in, what his game plan's going to be, because there's not been a single interview. It's it's unusual, for one, to not turn up to the press conference, but to not say or do anything? I've never heard of anything like that in the sport. We had something similar in the UFC a few years ago when Ronda Rousey, coming off a loss, refused to do any sort of piece of media, uh, and she ended up losing her fight to Amanda Nunes within 40 seconds. So we don't know where Dillian White's head's at, whether it's in the right place or not. He's definitely not happping with the purse split. Tyson Fury getting 80% on this one compared to Liam White's 20, and he felt he's been low-balled. He felt he should have got a higher percentage of the purse split. He's got a case in some regards, because usually when purse bids come to fruition, there's a, there's a much more even split, usually 60-40. However, in terms of the money that they've been bringing in from the last few fights, Fury is making substantially more. Yes, the, the the promoters want the fighters to sell the fight and probably would have worked out better had Dillian White played his part. Frank Warren has been on TalkSport. I remember he was in an argument with, uh, with Dillian White's lawyers a few weeks ago, quite a peculiar one, and Dillian White's lawyer was saying things like his, uh, his client wasn't promoting the fight due to certain terms not being met, such as Frank Warren not putting his purse in escrow. That wasn't agreed in the contract, though, so Dillian White doesn't really have much room to talk in this matter. But again, as you say, it does have that extra little bit of intrigue. Yeah, the the intrigue's there. Uh, I suppose in his mind, if he's only getting twenty percent of the purse, I'm going to only give you twenty percent of the promotion. It just lets hope that he doesn't give us twenty percent of the fight. Well, I mean, you've got to hope so. I mean, Dillian White should he not win this one, is not going to get another heavyweight world title shot. Mm. Who's which promoter is going to hold their hands up and go, "I want to promote Dillian White off the back of this." You're going to struggle to find them, aren't they? Because they want, ideally, their shows to sell. And if he doesn't sell them, then they're not going to. He might get away with it on this occasion because there is so much intrigue. But if he makes a habit out of doing this, he's going to kill his promotion in future fights going forward. He's not going to get big purse splits. And nobody's really going to want to want to, want to work with him because it's coming across a little bit petty. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose obviously with with Tyson Fury being sort of super promotion as well, it makes him look even worse, doesn't it? So it will be interesting to see sort of come fight night how that affects both. Because like you said, Tyson Fury feeds off that. But if he's not getting any anything back off Dillian White, then it might take that little bit of one percent off him, and then it might be White's opportunity to win. 
100%. I mean, as I said before, that night against Otto Wallin, meant to be an easy fight, no trash talk, and Fury sustained a massive cut above his eye, caused by a punch. Uh, had he been the away fighter that night, he could have well have been pulled out. Mm. Uh, he had to use every last bit of heart to get through it. He looked flat-footed, he, he looked slow. And to me, that was down to his lack of enthusiasm and his lack of motivation, to be quite frank. If he's in a similar situation now for this Dillian White fight, believe you me, White's a better fighter than Otto Wallen. And he's got a better style to beat Tyson Fury. So if Fury's not switched on, he's going to be in trouble. Why does Fury win this fight, James? Fury's the far superior technical boxer. There's levels in terms of this game. And Fury, from a technical aspect, is levels above Dillian White. His shots are cleaner. He's got substantially better footwork. His IQ's better. His head movement is well out of, well out of range. He's got quicker feet than Dillian White, so he should be able to stay out of range and be able to box him on the back foot. I don't think the tactics he implemented against Deontay Wilder will work. I don't think he's capable of rushing forward and bullying Dillian White. Wilder, yes, a physically taller man than the body snatcher, but he's got those small, he's got those wiry chicken legs. He's not built physically for strength. Dillian White is a little unit, he is. So I don't think Fury will have as much success pushing him back. So I don't think he'll be able to bully him. I think his route to winning this one is going back to those Vladimir Klitschko days and using the fact he's technically superior. Deontay Wilder has a rocket-like right hand that can fire in at any time. Dillian White has got a one-punch knockout with his left hook. However, if he can stay away from him, it's much easier to avoid because Deontay Wilder can cover distance very quickly. Dillian White has got slower feet and he can't. So that's the key to winning this fight for me. And by the looks of it, that's what Fury's plan is because he's lost a substantial amount of weight in the build-up to this one. However, as we've known in the past, dropping that substantial amount of weight can hurt you. And Fury, who has been up and down, up and down, up and down with his weight, not necessarily the most disciplined of fighters, that's going to affect you one day. How much weight has Tyson Fury lost? Do we know? We won't know for sure until he steps foot on those scales, but it's looking like a couple of stone rock. He's looking like he's lost a big amount of weight for this fight. For the wider fight, he came in very fleshy and he was nowhere near his best. It was his technical skills that saved him on that evening. Uh, but eventually, those technical skills, they'll still be there, but his athleticism is going to regress. I think, though, obviously, he's lost, he's lost two and a half stone, let's say. How much of a difference does that make for Tyson Fury, who's still a big boxer. It's not like he's, he's shed sort of half his body weight, is it? No, he's not. It's much easier for a heavyweight to do that than a lighter weight. It's just whether the going up and down for years hmm. has affected him. Because this is a man who, a few years ago, was 30 stone and had to lose it all. And after the second Wilder fight, when we finally thought, yes, he's back, he ballooned up again and he only scraped through the third fight. We've seen footage of him in camp for this Dillian White fight at the start of camp about eight or so weeks ago, and he looked incredibly fleshy. So if he's had to crash the weight in a very short period of time, it's not going to help him. And that's a massive problem, really, obviously, because like you said, like like uh, Ricky Hatton, he used to go up and down all the time. I suppose Ricky Hatton wasn't a heavyweight, but he was powerful with his punches. Yeah, Ricky Hatton, renowned. Ricky Fatten, as he used to call himself, 
Renalfa going up and down in weight outside of the ring. He enjoyed an English breakfast, his sausages, his black puddings, uh, his beans, etc. And I think, obviously, as a working class man ourselves, Rob, we also adore that type of meal. Oh, yeah. But when you're a professional athlete, you should really be avoiding it, shouldn't you? I know the temptation of the hash brown is... It's tempting, isn't it? It guides you in. It almost attracts you like a magnet, but you've got to avoid that. And ultimately, towards the back end of Ricky Hatton's career, after the Mayweather fight, he began to slowly show the signs of that. And for me, Fury's also showing those signs. Obviously, for a novice sort of boxing watcher like me, what are them signs that I'm going to be looking out for on Saturday? Fury, uh, slower feet. Right. Slower head movement. Mm-hmm. they're the things that in the wide art fight for me look significantly slower he wasn't light he wasn't nimble on his feet his boxing IQ soaring through he was able to tell the tells of Rowder's right hands but he is slowing he wasn't out of range as much as he used to be and in those first couple of rounds when Wilder looked sharp Fury looked vulnerable mm-hmm. I think there was a great deal of mental pressure on Wilder and that perhaps ultimately made him slow down and then ultimately Fury was able to use that physical strength and weight to lean all over Wilder. He won't have those advantages going into the white fight. So if that was down to Fury regressing, he's in a lot of trouble, especially considering how tough that Wilder fight was on him. He went down twice against the heaviest puncher in boxing history. And it wasn't like the first fight where he went down and it was just a one-shot type thing. He was taking a lot of damage throughout that third Wilder fight, and he was exceptionally lucky to get through it, as far as I'm concerned. However, it's fair to say that he didn't have the greatest camp going into that last fight. Mm. He trained for four weeks. His uh, daughter was in the hospital. It looked like they might lose her. So his mind wasn't in the best of places, and he was substantially injured going into that fight. So perhaps it wasn't him slowing down. Perhaps it was just the circumstances that made him look not quite as good as his brilliant best. But we're only going to find out for sure on fight night. What tactics should the challenger use, James, in this big contest? If I'm Dillian White, I'm looking to land that left hook all night long. Mm-hmm. And granted, Deontay Wilder had similar tactics and it didn't quite work out. I think Fury has more of a vulnerability in his game for that left hook. Even fighters like Tom Schwartz have caught him with the left hook in the past. So he is vulnerable to it. Uh, I'd also look, if I'm dealing white, to dig to the body over and over and over again. Because as we're talking, Fury, he's lost so much weight that that body will be vulnerable. It's gone up and down, up and down, up and down, and it will slowly start to feel the negatives of that. So if White, who is an exceptional body puncher, can make it rough, make it tough, dig to that body and then come upstairs, he's got every chance of catching Fury. A lot of people are writing off his chances. I, for one, I'm not. Which uh, boxer is close to the prime, uh, James? Such a difficult question, isn't it? Fury's been around for what seems like forever. I mean, he was fighting on ITV4 back, I think, about 2008. He's been a pro for an exceptionally long period of time. I couldn't believe, actually, that Dillian White's older than Tyson Fury, uh, which Mm. took me by surprise, because it seems like he's only been around relatively recently, of course, making his first splash for the British title against Anthony Joshua back in 2015, two weeks after Fury won the world titles against Klitschko. So that's the sort of comparison in their careers. White's probably been through more wars recently. He had those tough fights with Joseph Parker, two tough fights against Derek Chisora, and not cold, obviously, by Alexander Povetkin, and he even went down to Oscar Rivas. 
But in terms of wars, Tyson Fury renowned as a man who, who, who doesn't get hit. But in the recent stages of his career, uh, sorry, in the early stages of his career, he was in wars all the time. Nicholas Furfer, uh, John McDermott, Steve Cunningham, etc. He went to the well on so many different occasions. And yes, it's years ago, but it still takes its toll. So it's a difficult question to answer. So really, out of the two, Tyson Fury's more box office. So... Dillian White really needs to to win this one to try and catapult him into that Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua stratosphere. Yeah, he has always been in their shadows. I mean, the big three of the last sort of five years since Vladimir Klitschko, Vladimir Klitschko retired, Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder, hmm. and um, Andy Ruiz for a short period for himself into the mix. But Dillian White has just been on the circumference, just on the outer rim of those big names. Hmm. And in a performance, if he, if he can beat Tyson Fury, he explodes into that mix and he catapults himself to being a genuine star. Yes, he's got a big name in the boxing realm. He's headline pay-per-views against Parker, Chisora, Rivas and Povetkin. But he's not an international superstar. He's not going to walk around America and get well-recognised like Tyson Fury is. Fury's become a global name. White needs a victory of this calibre to become one himself. Yeah, uh, Tom Tommy Fury is on the undercard. Uh, could a big win put him back on Jake Paul's radar? I don't know. Uh, Jake Paul's been quite silent on Tommy Fury. Uh, right now, Jake Paul has the advantage because a lot of people are saying that Tommy was scared of him. I personally don't buy into that narrative. I think something that we've got a problem with nowadays in boxing is not accepting that a fighter can get injured. If somebody pulls out of a fight because of an injury, then they could very well be injured. And Tommy Fury wasn't faking it. He posted a scan on his social media of the broken rib. What more do you want? He, he couldn't go into the fight with that injury. If he'd have taken one to the body, he'd have gone straight over. Hmm. So I don't buy into the narrative that Jake, uh, that Tommy's scared. However, the, the masses do. So right now, Jake Paul has an advantage over Tommy Fury because everyone's calling Tommy scared. So Jake almost has a condolence, a, a, um, a win in itself right there. She doesn't necessarily have to take the fight. He's still mentioning Tommy's name here and there, but it's not a fight that he seems to be discussing greatly. Um, I think in his last fight against Tyron Woodley, he showed a lot of vulnerability. And there would have been things there that Tommy Fury could have exploited had they met on the night. But he might never get his opportunity now. And Jake can always say, well, I'd have beaten Tommy and Tommy would be scared. So he always has the leverage in, in, in those terms. But Jake Paul's scheduled to come back in August. He's not got an opponent yet. Tommy's fighting in in April, obviously. A few months gone by, he would have time to train for that fight. So a big performance, a big statement against the biggest opponent of his career so far, Daniel Bianski, 10-1. Significantly better than the journeyman that Fury has been fighting and, and Jake Paul's sparring partner, who he beat over four rounds in his last fight. Mm. It could put him back on the radar. It could get in that big fight. But I, I can't guarantee it, Rob. It's still a fight I'd like to see. Still a big fight. Still a great rivalry. But I just don't know yet. Just let me get this right. Jake Paul's a YouTuber. Is that right? Correct. Jake Paul, the YouTuber, who right now is the uh, is one of the biggest names in British boxing. The yeah. one, who, not British boxing. Sorry, world boxing. The man who's getting all the clicks. His pay per view selling hundreds of thousands of buys. His last one, notably though, the rematch against Woodley, only got about eighty thousand. 
extremely poor pay-per-view buys, considering he'd done about 600,000 for the fight, rumoured to have done upwards of a million for the one before that. And that could be because everybody had bought into the Fury narrative. And when they didn't get it, they weren't interested. So from that perspective, it may be the correct business move for him to bring Tommy Fury back into the fray. But Jake Paul holds the ace cards here. He's the fighter who has the stack of cards piled in his favour, not Tommy Fury. Yeah, it's weird. Obviously, YouTube life is kind of merged into to boxing life, and you never thought of that sort of years ago, would you? It's it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, we've talked on this show years ago on the Christmas show. We, we talked about it, didn't we? When we yeah. talked about uh, Robbie Williams versus Liam Gallagher being that massive celebrity fight, and then we somehow parlayed that into who'd win between Johnny McLean and uh, Rocky Balboa in a street fight, which <laughs> which I think got mixed opinions on the show. It was a bit of a, a controversial subject, but it's mental because <sighs> there are people out there who genuinely believe Jake Paul could beat Tommy Fury, and it's not that far fetched. Yeah, it's, it's like you say though. He's Tommy Fury is like a a real life boxer, while um, Jake Paul is a kind of a YouTuber trying to be a boxer. And and it's just, it's it's like you say, it's strange. Obviously, like we said with Tommy Fury backing out of the fight, but if they're looking at wanting to make big numbers and and big money, that's where the the demand is. That's where the 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 you know excitement is that these two particularly don't like each other. There's history. And that's what people want to want to want to pay the money for, don't they? So I I reckon that Jake Paul will get back on with Tommy Fury eventually, like all these other boxers that we've talked about in the last few weeks coming back to fight each other. Um, and I think that's what's going to happen. We we hope so. I mean, that fight was very well timed for Tommy Fury first time because Jake Paul is so inexperienced in the game. So it was a good time for Tommy to capitalize, get in there, and win. Jake's had another fight now a tougher fight where he's had to overcome hurdles. He was down on the cards in that second Woodley fight and he found yeah. a way to find that big right hand and get the job done. So he's only going to be better going into the Fury fight. So there's a chance here that Fury has missed his window because if the truth be told, I think Jake Paul's got more talent for the boxing game than Fury and Tommy's big advantage is experience. The more experience Jake gets, the harder he's going to be to beat. So... Fury's missing his window, perhaps, to win this one. But Jake Paul's going to be even more confident about winning. It's so tough. I mean, Fury, yes, on paper, the boxer. But he only had 10 amateur fights, Rob. Uh, He's only had a few pro fights against relatively poor standard. And by the looks of it, I don't think he's the most dedicated. Whereas Jake Paul, for his flaws, does seem to be very dedicated. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be absolutely fascinating them to get it together just to see uh, sort of how this uh, how it all plays out. Final uh, boxing question is also Brit fighting for a world title in Liverpool on Friday night. Talk us through that, James. Yeah, there is. Paul Butler taking on John Real Casemiro. They were meant to fight a few months ago on a Prebellum card in Dubai and it, it fell apart. But it's been reorganised for Merseyside for the Echo Arena in Liverpool or the MS Bank Arena, as I think it's been renamed. Good opportunity for Paul. Uh, John Rayel struggles to make the way, so he could have an opening there. However, on paper, if the Filipino is anywhere near his best, I think Butler's in trouble. Granted, a great fighter in his own right, a former world champion. But since that loss to Zolani Tete all those years ago, he hasn't quite looked the same. It's a perfect example of why you shouldn't vacate your world title when you've got one, because it completely backfired on Paul. And he's missed out on the big bucks that he probably would have earned had he stayed at his original weight. Mm. But you've got to take your opportunities as they come. He's not in a world title fight in 
three or four years since he lost to Emmanuel uh, Rodriguez, who a good fighter. So he's got an opportunity here to take on. He's got the backing of his home crowd. He's got the scouts in his corner. They're a fearsome crowd. So if he's going to win a world title again, become a two-time world champion, a two-weight world champion, this is his opportunity. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens, James, in this in the boxing world in the next few weeks and months. So we'll be talking all about it on the the Sports Zone on Salford City every week, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Make sure you you keep your dial on at ninety four point one Salford City Radio. So let's talk about football managers, James. Um, what makes a good football manager for you? It's a bit of a cliche, but it's firm but fair, isn't it? Because you've got to assert your dominance over the players. You're not equals. You're above them. You're telling them what to do. You're asserting the tactics and they've got to respect you. But at the same time, you have got to get to know them. You have got to be a big brother figure almost. So they warmed you. So they want to play for you. Because we've seen so often, even special managers, the likes of Jose Mourinho, etc. If they don't gel with the players, the players won't perform for them. And that's a key thing, really, that... Obviously, football managers, they come into a club, don't they? And instantly, players either kind of like them or dislike them. And you've got to kind of manage that situation, haven't you? And I, I think it's a, it's a really sort of difficult job when, when you think about it because there's only a limited amount of spaces available in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the area. So, you know, you need to make sure you perform. If you don't, then obviously then you're to the wall and there might be another play, player or, or another manager who comes in and takes your place. So there's super pressure involved too. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's a very cutthroat business, football managing, isn't it? I mean, we see managers who do great things like Claudio Ranieri winning the Premier League for Leicester at 5,000 to 1 and then sacked later yeah. on. So it, this is how it happens. Yeah, very difficult for these managers. They've got a hell of a lot of pressure on them. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, all the praise in the world. Ole's at the wheel. And then a couple of years later, everybody's turned on him. It does turn that quickly. It does change. So it's a very difficult role. And there's so much pressure because every single week there's something. There's no respite. There isn't. There isn't, James. And obviously, we've had a quick look, haven't we, through through the, the our, what we think are the best uh, football managers uh, of, of our time, of all time, sorry. Um, do we, how do you want to do this? You want to go ten to ten to one? This list? Yeah, I think I think ten to one. Ten to one. I think it's a good route, Rob. Okay. So, do you want me to give me your first manager and why you think he's number ten? So this guy probably won't be in anyone else's top ten, if the truth be told. And um, realistically, for achievements throughout his career, he doesn't have any right to be on this list, Rob. Okay. But he had one special moment that I'm not sure any other manager could have achieved. Because hmm. at 5,000 to 1, who could have guided Leicester to a Premier League title? Well, wow. It's incredible. An incredible achievement of the likes we've never seen before, of the likes we'll probably never see again. And that's, for me, why Claudio Ranero deserves a place on this list. Well, my number 10 would be... Um, I'm going to go for George Graham. Because at Arsenal, he won two leagues titles, he won an FA Cup, he won two League Cups, one at Tottenham one at Arsenal and he won a Charity Shield as well. Early days of uh, the, well late days of the Football League, early days of the Premier League he was one of the top uh, managers, managed at Arsenal managed at Tottenham as well um, and he he did a good job under you know circumstances at Arsenal um, 
So I'm not sure. What, what obviously do we go for the flash in the pan fairy tale, or do you go for the consistency? That's the question. Fairy tale, Rob. I love a fairy tale. I love Shrek. I love them all. All these old school tales. And 5,000 to 1, Rob. The amount of people that... I mean, he made some people very rich, didn't he? He did. With that particular win. Granted, your guy, probably the better manager. Yeah. But this is a moment in sport that will live forever. Okay. What we'll do then? We'll go with Ranieri as as our number 10. Okay. Number 9 for me is... I'm going to go for Arsene Wenger. Another Arsenal manager won three Premier League titles, seven FA Cups and seven in seven charity shields. Um, kind of made the Arsenal, the the modern day Arsenal they are today. He created that. He came into the club, uh, Mr. Nobody, really. Nobody knew who Arsene Wenger was. Brought all the, you know, healthy eating and, and all the, you know, the healthy training and all that in. To a, to a club that was kind of ravaged by booze by the sound of it. So he turned that club round single-handed. Yes, in Europe he wasn't the he wasn't the most successful, but domestically he had the Invincibles, he had them um, three Premier League titles, seven FA Cups. He was, you know, one of the best managers around. He had a great rivalry with Alex Ferguson, which is which is fantastic at the time. Obviously, both teams competing for Premier League titles and uh, for FA Cups and things like that. So I'm putting him as number nine in my list. I think he's a good pick. Uh, full disclosure, he pops up at number eight in mine, oh. so one place higher. Okay. Him. But my number nine, I put Arago Saki, the, uh, the Milan manager. Won the Serie A on his debut, back-to-back Champions League, took Italy to a World Cup final. A top-class manager, and that Inter Milan side at the time, renowned as one of the best in the world. Hmm. So do we go domestic or do we go international for this nine? I'm thinking, because you had ten, I want nine. So I'm thinking <laughs> so it's getting competitive. Fair enough. You put you put Wenger in a nine. Okay. So number eight, who's your? Well, you say Arsene Wenger was number eight, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, he was. So I suppose uh, my contender for this spot. Then I'll boost him up one, and we'll okay. put Saki in there. Who've you got? Uh, my next one was I've got Jurgen Klopp from Liverpool. One Premier League title, one League Cup uh, title, uh, one Champions League, and. Obviously, he's got he's got uh, foreign uh, titles to his name, uh, but I was think I was looking more domestic and uh, yeah, he's won a Premier League. He's not won an FA Cup yet. That might change, uh, but he has built a really good team at Liverpool. And you know, I, I might be thinking obviously five years down the line, we'll see where he is and see where Liverpool was, and he might be further up my list. But well, at the moment, I'm going for uh, Jurgen Klopp at eight. Yeah, uh, one of the greatest managers on the planet right now. Success in leagues around the world. And perhaps he beat Sake out based on the fact that he won Liverpool's first ever Premier League title. Mm. And that's something that the Reds were trying to do for years and couldn't achieve. And it was a bit of a a bit of a bit kicker for them in the same way now that Manchester City haven't got a Champions League. But this dated back even further. So it was a humongous achievement for the German I didn't include him in my list. Perhaps I should have. Perhaps he slipped by. So I'm not against him featuring in. Okay. So we'll go Klopp at eight. Klopp at eight. Number seven. Who is your number seven? Sticking with that theme, uh, I went for Bill Shankly. Bill uh, Shankly. Securing Liverpool promotion to the first division, three league titles, and a UEFA Cup to his name. Well, I had Bill Shankly at three. Because, Ooh. like you said, three, three league titles... 
two FA Cups, one UEFA Cup, four Charity Shields. When you when you talk to Liverpool fans, they talk Phil Shankly as in like being the big the the man, the manager that that sort of created the Liverpool way. And I had him at three because obviously is he is a big um, big manager. I think what's his quote? Football's um, is it more important than life and death? It's more important than that, or something like that. So he he you know built that Liverpool team up from sort of ruins until until I think it was the was it late seventies when it when he when he left. And you know it's 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 kind of like when you think about it, he was probably one of the best ones uh, of all time, really. Yeah, well, certainly, and that's why I made my list. Perhaps I could have put him further up, and without him, would Liverpool be where they are today? Probably not. Without mm. that promotion to the first division, yeah, who knows if they'd be as successful as they were are now? You don't know. So uh, it's difficult. I mean, are we thinking putting Shankly further up? No, oh. mm, you know what? We'll, we'll put him at seven for now, but we can move in. We can rearrange, can we? Yeah, we, if we if we think there's less people above him, we can. Bring him, bring him up, if that makes sense. Yeah. Who did you have at number seven, Rob? Number seven. Minute nine, eight. I had Pep Guardiola. I had Pep Guardiola. Three Premier League titles, one FA Cup, three League Cups, two Charity Shields. You know, dominant force in English football. Not done it. Uh, not won a European Cup yet, which is which is a big thing. Um, but like we said with Pep, with uh, Jurgen Klopp. You know, if three, five years down the line, if he manages to pick up a couple of European Cups, uh, then he probably will be further up the list. Most certainly. I mean, he is in my list and he is further up. Uh, I, I don't know how in, I don't know how, where, where to reveal exactly where he is yet. Mm. But what I will say is that, yes, he is lacking that World Cup at Manchester City and, and people use that as a bit of a, a thing to slay his legacy. But it's only used because of the amount of success he's had at other clubs. Mm. He's won a Champions. He's won Champions League with Barcelona. He's won them with Bayern Munich. He's ticking clubs off, mm. and surely that puts him above virtually every other manager of all time. Right. Well, well, we keep him floating, and then if if we when we later on if we need to put him in, we, we will. Fair enough. So, next manager, I'm going to go. I'm going to say number one, two, three, four, five. Number six for me is Brian Clough. One league title for Derby. One league title for Nottingham Forest, three league uh, cups for Derby County, four for Forest, two European Cups, one Super Cup, and one Anglo Scottish Club. The original Jose Mourinho, Cup King at Forest, um, the best manager never to manage England, they say. Uh, great character, uh, always had something to say. Got his players playing that Nottingham Forest team that won two European Cups back-to-back. is one of the best uh, teams to come from our shores. So he is in uh, sixth for me. Yep, a great manager. Somebody else who slipped my mind. I I probably should have put a bit more research into this, but a great manager. Somebody who achieved such special things with his club. Uh, It was interesting how you called him the original special one, because I had the special one in at number six. Right. Uh, Champions Leagues with Porto, Champions Leagues with Inter Milan. Did, did wonderful stuff with Chelsea. And in his prime, granted, probably shot the bits now, but in his prime, he had this aura about him. Mm. This thing that he would always win, this special, if you'll pardon the pun, energy about him. Mm. And it truly felt that for that window, when he was at his best, he was he was the best there was. And he kind of had the same mentality as Brian Clough, where he'd want more from his players and demand more. And the players kind of like... 
she wanted to show him that I was I am the best player that you're going to get and kind of played for him but also against him to get where they got and I can understand why Cluffy and Jose are in the same kind of ballpark area uh, in our managerial uh, top 10. Yeah, most certainly. So it's a case of where we put them in. I mean, really, both of these men probably deserve a spot. So are we, are we putting them in at, at, yeah. at like uh, six and five, seventh and sixth, and potentially dropping Ranieri out? Oh, yeah, we can do seven and six. Right. So we'll go. That's probably where we're at, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, we'll go Jose six and Cluffy seven. Yeah. Um, Lovely. So now we're moving on are. to the big boys, the top five. Yeah. I went for Johan Cruyff, uh, one of the greatest, longest-serving Barca manager, 11 trophies to his name, a European Cup with Ajax, four La Liga titles, and a further Champions League with Barcelona. Ah, I didn't think of him. He's, like you say, he is the like the 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 god of of Barcelona, and he he's like the people that, that that look up to him as being a great player and a great manager as well. And yeah, he's he's won a lot in his career uh, abroad. And uh, yeah, he's certainly you know a, a contender for that fifth spot. Uh, I went for um, I went for Matt Busby, Manchester United, um, five league titles, two FA Cups, five Charity Shields, one European Cup. Now, Matt Busby, uh, sort of like the the god of Manchester United, the, the man who rebuilt uh, the team after the Munich air disaster, got them to a European Cup final and won Best Law Charlton. All the magic that, that surrounds that. Um, does it does it compare to uh, Johan Cruyff and everything he did he did with sort of Ajax and Barcelona? That's a good question because Cruyff did it with two teams and Busby only did it one. He did. Uh, I actually put some at Busby's one place above at number four. Okay. That's where I had him. As you say, rebuilt rebuilt United, the Busby Babes, after the horrible uh, tragedy. And um, I think for that, for the spirit he put back into the club, for the way he guided us, for the way he brought that sense of unity to Manchester United, hmm. he has to be in the list. So we're in territory again where we've got two people going in, we're dropping out whoever our number 10 is. Yeah. So, uh, Cry for five. Who's bit the bullet? Four. Then, Rob? Say again? Yep. Yep, so yeah, Cruyff at five, Busby at four, and who's bit the bullet? Who goes out? Ten. I'm thinking. Uh, who did you see? Ran me Clop. 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 Does Clop go? Uh, who's, who's number 10? We took Ran me out. We put. Right, we should have wrote this down, really, shouldn't we? I did. <laughs> I got Klopp at nine. Oh, you have got it now. I got Klopp at nine. I've got Pepper eight. Um, yeah. Clough at seven. Josie at six. Cruyff at five. Busby at four. But I've not got number ten. Right, Wenger okay. at ten. So, so we'll drop Wenger out. Yeah, Wenger at ten. And we'll put. Um, so does Wenger take tenth place, or has he dropped that list completely? We'll drop. Wenger out and put Cop at ten. Okay. Well, right. who who did you have at number four then? Out of interest, Rob. Number four was Matt Busby. Cool. 
Oh, no, on your original list, Matt Busby. Yeah, yeah. I thought Matt Busby was number five on your original list. No, four. One, two, three, four. Fifth was Jose. Oh, right, okay. So I, I had Cruyff at four, five. I had Busby at four. Yeah. At three, bit of a different flavour, Rinus Mikels, a European Cup winner with Isaac, uh, with Ajax, uh, won the Liga with Spain, deemed the coach of the century by FIFA, took the Netherlands to two World Cup finals and deemed as the best post-war coach of all time by the Times. Well, I had Bill Shankly. <laughs> but we've talked about Bill Shankly, haven't we, and what he did. <laughs> so I, I think probably we'll go for your guy because uh, he'd done it internationally. Fair enough. I mean, you, we've got these coaches who changed the game. He brought the term total football into being. And that's probably why he deserves a place on the list. Mm. Uh, at two, the big unveiling, that's uh, that's where I had Pep Guardiola for his Aye. achievements. Who did you have? Number two, I got uh, Bob Paisley for Liverpool. Six league titles, three league cups, six charity shields, three European cups, one UEFA cup uh, and one European super club. Kind of took the glory years of, of Liverpool FC, um, changed the game over there sort of made Liverpool what they, what they are today, winning all them European Cups. Took over the mantle from Bill Shankler, who built did all the groundwork. Uh, but I went as Bill uh, Bob Paisley has my number two. Fair enough. And because we've got Guardiola in at eight yeah. uh, at the moment, we'll put your guy in at number two. And that okay. leaves us, I think, with a perfect list. Because I'm assuming we've gone for the exact same man at number one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Harry Redknapp. No. <laughs> no, we've got Alex Ferguson as our number one, J- uh, James. Uh, 13 Premier League titles, two Ch- Champions League, two Cup Winner Cup, five FA Cups, four League Cups, uh, a World, World Club Cup, uh, a Super Cup, 10, 10 Community Shields. You know, he's a master of, of many generation, reinvented himself, reinvented the team many times uh, and a worthy uh, number one spot. He's the greatest of all time. I mean, mm. you've got the Beatles, you've got Muhammad Ali, you've got Lionel Messi and your Pelés, etc. He is the greatest manager without a shadow of doubt. Yeah. Who have ever lived? The Scottish sensation, the famous hairdryer treatment, the famous Fergie time. His team... Never gave up trying. They always found a way to win. I mean, that 1999 final against Bayern Munich in which Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Teddy Sheringham found those last-minute winners. Incredible. What he did for that club will never, ever be forgotten. He's left a legacy of the greatest of all time, and it's as simple as that. We've had disputes along the list of all the men who could have been put into this, Hmm. but we didn't have any dispute with the number one name. And I think anybody else with any sense would also have him as the number one. Rob, quick revamp. Who were our top 10 altogether? And a couple of words about Sir Alex Ferguson to top it off. Well, Alex Ferguson, you know, what, what, a, what a manager, what a coach. Uh, changed the game. And uh, he's, like you said, he built Manchester United from a, from ruins to, to, you know, being the best team in Europe. So, uh, made the youth development, created a really good side, brought in big players, um, and we look back at them uh, memories fondly now, James, and uh, he's well worthy of our of our number one uh, in the, the manager's list. As a Brucey bonus, James, what we'll do now, I want to go through the top 
sort of 10 sportsmen of all time for you. Uh, this was a tougher list because I said that we can't have um, sportsmen from the same sport. Um, you know, from, from, no, two sportsmen from the same sport in the list, which makes it a bit more difficult, don't you think? Uh, most certainly there are, but it made it harder when picking. There was great footballers who had to miss out, great boxers who had to miss out, great cricketers, uh, great darts players. There was uh, there was a lot of people who didn't quite make the list. And uh, I've not actually put this one in order yet, so I'm going to do it on the spot, mm. which is going to be quite difficult. So I'll kick it off with my night number 10. Uh, Michael Schumacher right. revolutionised the racing game. Yes, I went for Schumacher. Uh, seven world titles, uh, 91 wins. Um, oh, obviously, unfortunately, uh, injured in a skiing accident, which kind of cut short his his, his career uh, and his memory, really, because obviously he's not you know walking about. People don't see him, so people kind of forget about uh, the 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 magic which he which he had. So I put I put him down at, at ten as well. I think he deserves his place in the list, and if it wasn't for that. Uh... That injury probably would have gone on to achieve even more than he already did, but undoubtedly the greatest of all time in his sport. Mm-hmm. Number nine, and I'm picking this on the right in the moment. Uh, I'm going to go for Michael Jordan. Yes. Basketball player, incredibly famous, a monster athlete, knew exactly how to dribble the ball, knew exactly how to put the ball in the net, and a great basketball player and a legacy that will last forever. Yeah. Michael Jordan, for me, Changed the game when it comes to basketball in the 80s uh, and, and the 90s when basketball sort of got big again. He was the main man for that. Six NBA championships, six uh, most valuable players in the NBA, um, two goals in the in the Olympics in 84 and 92, I think. Uh, played for the Chicago Bulls. When, when you talk basketball, James. You say Michael, the people say Michael Jordan. You find uh, that's the that's the name on everybody's lips. Um, so he is he is certainly in our top ten, and I, I'd go for nine as well, like you. All right, fair enough. That's just, so we're we're, we're pretty uh, agreed so far on this list. Uh, yeah, a bit less controversial than the last one. Yeah, we've got eight minutes or so left. I mean, so we're going to potentially have to race through this one. But number eight, uh, cricketer recently yep. gone, Shane Warne. Shane Warne. Good player. I've gone for Don Bradman. Uh, averaged a 99 uh, batting, played between 1925 and 1948. He said he only hit six sixes in his career. So he was he was the ultimate batsman. Uh, people in cricket talk about him as being the greatest player of all time. I, I was a bit, I was torn between him and Sachin Tendulkar because Sachin Tendulkar, He's like a modern day great, in it. He he's, he's he plays for India. The Indians kind of talk to him as like you know as a, as a god really, and uh, so it was a tough con- tough call between the two. Uh, but I went for Don Bradman. Don Bradman. I mean, Sachin Tendulkar there, as you say, the little master, mm. as he's known in the trade. We've got three men here, all competing for that spot. Who gets it? I'm gonna go Shane Warne. I think Shane. I think Shane won because obviously he played great cricket, but also had a good sort of personality outside. So I think he's well worthy of that eighth spot. Fair enough. Shane won it. Number eight. Number seven. Uh, this is going to be controversial because there'll be arguments of whether it's a sport or not. Huh? But the child in me has gone for the Undertaker. Oh, James! And stick with me. Stick with me, Rob. Yeah. 
There was okay. nothing like in professional sports or sports entertainment, like the lights going dark, mm. the Undertaker's music blasting out into the arena, and then suddenly <laughs> the lights go up and he's in the ring. He's stood there. He's ready to give somebody a choke slam to throw somebody in a casket. He's just been inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. A legend of sport. Whether people like that or not, I think the Undertaker is number seven. James, I will give you that just for the the the, the passionate um, description of what of what he what he did and what he achieved in the in the in the World Wrestling uh, Federation. So I'll give you that one uh, at six at seven. Well, the listeners are going to be furious. <laughs> Uh, I think it's fair to say that he's made his way in there. But who did you have out of interest? Um, I went for um, I went for Usain Bolt because obviously three, uh, oh, eight Olympic oh, golds, uh, eleven World Championships, one Commonwealth gold, uh, the fastest man on earth, uh, really. Um, but yeah, he, he was he was in his on his day, um, you know, super charismatic, charismatic. And you know, had had the pace to burn as well, and uh, made so many memories through the years. I didn't have him in my list, but I feel like he has to go in there. Mm. So there's part of me wanting to give him that sixth place, even higher up than the Undertaker. Okay. But we are getting to a stage, and we had it in the last list where people have to drop out, so we'll have yeah. to bear that in mind going forward. But uh, who, who's next? Who did you have at, at number five? My uh, number five. Sorry, number six. Number six. Sorry, this who's is, your who's it? your five? Uh, I had. Well, I had Undertaker at seven, didn't I? And you had Bolt at seven as well, so I've got to give you a number six. Okay. Uh, I had Michael Phelps, but Bolt probably the better sportsman there. Michael Phelps, though. He's a good, he was a good good player, a good swimmer, Michael Phelps. Um, yeah, you know, I think he has to make the list, James. I think we'll go with Phelps at five. Five. Okay. So we're running out of names now. Uh, I'm going for... Number four. Who do I go for here? Tiger Woods. He made golf sexy. Yes. Yes. I was with you that. I got Tiger Woods at four as well, to be fair. Uh, 82 uh, PGA Tour winners, 41 uh, European Tour winners, uh, Masters winners, US Open, English Open, PG, PGA Championship winner as well on multiple occasions. Um, you know, a modern day legend, everyone, like I said before, uh, with Michael Jordan. You talk about golf, you talk about Tiger Woods. You certainly do. Going into number three, I had the power, Phil Taylor. And once again, people argue over how much athleticism darts needs. Find me another man who's won 16 world titles in his sport. Incredible showing. Incredible. One of the greatest players of all time. Probably the greatest English sportsman to have lived in terms of achievements and kept going so late into his age, into his 50s. Still winning tournament against against the likes of Michael Van Gerwens and your Adrian Lewis's and your your Gary Anderson, your Peter Wrights, your your James Wade's, etc. He just kept going on and on and on. And without him, the sort of dart wouldn't be in the position it is today, where it's going all over the world, where they're packing out twenty thousand arenas. It wouldn't exist without Phil the Power Taylor. I went for Ronnie O'Sullivan uh, for snooker. Thirty-eight title titles, six World Championships, seven UK. Uh, championships, 60 finals. Um, you know, he he is the best snooker player of all time. Um, does Phil the Power Taylor, does he, uh, would like you say, would darts be where it was today without him? So I think I'm going to go with Taylor for three. Fair enough. We're now down to the final two. Yeah. Uh, I had essentially not the most talented boxer of all time, but certainly the one with the most impact, Muhammad Ali. Right. 
stood up for what he believed in in terms yeah. of the Vietnam War. He didn't believe, so he didn't go. And it cost him for, it cost him a large chunk of his life and his prime, so who knows what he could have gone on to achieve. Mm. But what he did do in the ring, his exceptional performances, the thriller in Manila with uh, Joe Fraser, the rumble in the jungle with George Foreman, in which he achieved the ultimate underdog victory against a man who everybody said would beat him and kill him. That was the narrative at the time, that George Foreman would kill Muhammad Ali in the ring. He reinvigorated trash talk. There wouldn't be a Tyson Fury, a Floyd Mayweather, etc. People who talk like them without what Muhammad Ali did. It's, it's certainly, he was on my list as well, James, but he was top of my list. So I'll put him down in two for you. So we've got a minute and 30. Salah's your number one. My number one sportsman of all time is Paul Whiteside, a trophy <laughs> boxer, uh, white collar fighter on the show. No, uh, we, uh, we love Paul and we'll see him hopefully back for next week. Yeah. But my number one... Uh, sportsman is Lionel Messi and it's as simple as this football right. is the most popular sport on the planet okay everybody plays it everybody wants to grow up to be a footballer there's so much competition yet he's the best of all time and that's why he's the number one for me my number one well it was Muhammad Ali but for this situation I'm going to go Pele 24 trophies he won uh, Fan Santos in Brazil. He won the World Cup three times. Uh, he won seven more trophies with Brazil, sort of domestically. 92 hat-tricks, 1,283 goals in 1,363 games. The complete footballer, Ask George Best. Well, Ask George Best, another one of the greats who's unlucky not to make this list. Yeah. Probably would have done had we not reserved it to one sportsman per sport. But I'll give it to you. You've made some concessions for me, so I'll let you have Pele as the number one pick. Mostly because of what he achieved on the international level. But mm. to recap, 10, Michael Schumacher, 9, Michael Jordan, 8, Shane Warne, 7, The Undertaker, 6, Usain Bolt, 5, Michael Phelps, 4, Tiger Woods, 3, Phil the Taylor, 2, Ali, and 1, Pele. Yes, magical. Two fantastic lists, James. We've scoured the world of, of sport tonight uh, and to pick, to pick the best. It's been a fantastic show. Big thanks for tuning in to the Sport Zone on Salford City Radio. I'm Bro Parkson and we'll see you next week for more Salford Sporting Chat.